2: Hi there. I'm Nathan Hobson, your host for this episode of the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, in which I'll be talking with Dr. Maren Ellers about her book, Give and Take, Poverty and the Status Order in Early Modern Japan. In this book, which is out from the Harvard University Asia Center in 2018, Dr. Ellers examines the management and regulation of poverty in Tokugawa, Japan, focusing on self-governing, occupation-based, and other status groups, especially the so-called beggar bosses and blind guilds. The title, Give and Take is part of the book's argument about the ways in which their relationship to government was one of reciprocity between ostensibly benevolent rulers and duty-bound status groups. Through a detailed examination of an extraordinary collection of primary sources from the castle town of Ono in modern Fukui Prefecture, Ellers enriches our understanding of the complex dynamics of interconnectivity and reciprocity that characterized Japan under Tokugawa rule. Okay, so Dr. Ellers, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'd like to First, to ask you a little bit about the background of the book. How did you become interested in this topic, and in and in particular, how did you become interested in uh, this location? Right, you have you're focused on a very specific location.
1: Um, well, thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast and giving me a chance to um, talk about my book. I think the initial reason I got interested in, in poverty in Tokugawa, Japan as a grad student um, was that this was a way for me to um, see Tokugawa, Japan through a somewhat less um, romantic lens. I was um, uh, a student of Japanology, Japanese studies in at the University of Hamburg at the time, and uh, I had worked, done quite a bit of work on, on, on Japanese literature, taking um, seminars. And, um, and I think there is a temptation that a lot of um, uh, Tokugawa specialists um, recognize um, to romanticize this um, as the period of, of geisha and kabuki and woodblock prints. And I think I was um, consciously reacting to that by um, focusing um, on economic difficulties, issues of power and marginalization. And um, poor relief was especially interesting to me because I thought it would help me understand how the poor were embedded in society, that um, I wouldn't just uh, focus on the poor in isolation, but that uh, it would give me a chance to see how they related to uh, people higher up the social um, chains and chain um, interactions between uh, social classes. And when I entered um, graduate school, when I started my my, my PhD, I went to Japan um, for two years and um, uh, my in- interest in marginalized people brought me in touch um, with a um, certain research group of social historians in the early 2000s, the so-called Status Marginality Research Group, uh, which had formed in the 1990s. And it consisted of Marxist historians with a strong interest in underclass issues. I was uh, particularly working with um, Tsukada Takashi initially at Osaka City University and then also with uh, Yoshida Nobuyuki. And this was a a pretty large um, group of scholars at various universities and and they were working on the premise that the status order was um, dynamic and uh, and was changing over time. They were trying to go against this view of um, these fixed status categories um, uh, assigned from above, um, like this hierarchy of the four estates, the samurai on top and then the peasants and the artisans and merchants. And then there would be the outcasts as people who didn't really have a status, um, who were not placed within this hierarchy of status and uh, these um, scholars had um, gathered a lot of evidence that simply didn't fit in with this model and they were looking for a better way to explain how status was assigned and and this uh, led them to uh, conduct a lot of um, empirical research um, particularly on groups that were at the margins of society because uh, these scholars believed that um, it was at the margins of society really that the status order was um, the most dynamic and um, the most fluid and ambiguous And, and it Turned out, um, it was turning out in the in the in the 2000, early two thousands that the status order as a whole was actually pretty dynamic. It wasn't just at the margins, but um, definitely the margins were the most interesting. Um, subjects of, of research in the beginning. And there was a lot of empirical research being piled up on, on groups like itinerant clerics and entertainers and beggar guilds. And, and I came into this situation, I started to read a lot of their work. And, and it took me a while to process how um, this work would actually be relevant uh, for me to understand poverty and poor relief in general, because um, I mean, when we think of these mendicant groups, it's pretty obvious they were marginal even among the poor. The large um, majority of the Tokugawa poor were not a part of a a mendicant group or a group of street entertainers or something like that. But I, uh, when I I started to um, work with Ono sources, and I think I will explain in a moment why I I picked this um, local case, and and I saw these um, groups operating in the context of one local society, I realized that um they absorbed uh, poor commoners on a regular basis and uh, their existence had a lot of impact on on how uh, poor people and other status groups um, how they led their lives and i also um, picked uh, these groups um of entertainers and and beggars and so on picked up on the same logic of governance as other subjects in Tokugawa society. They um, tried to protect their livelihood by acting collectively. They tried to get recognized by the authorities and perform a duty that would make them seem useful in the eyes of the authorities. And, um, Um, And and certainly these mendicant groups were a bit special because um, the the protection that they received from the government typically involved the protection of begging rights. But quote-unquote respectable commoners were um, also using similar strategies. They were using occupational associations as a vehicle for for getting privileges, protections, and sometimes they used them to ask the government for poor relief if this was necessary. So in that sense, the um, marginal groups weren't quite so marginal after all. and it's it became clear to me that um, for poor and marginalized people there was a particularly strong incentive um, to form new occupational groups. Um, and the first reason was that they struggled to find stable sources of income, and so they became quite creative in in trying to uh, monopolize a new livelihood and 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 try to get that protected. And and very often poor people did not have um, a land or a house, and owning a land or a house was really a condition of being a full member in one of the most established status groups in Tugugawa society, the villages and the Cho. And if you, didn't, if you were not a full member of one of these groups, then you um, could not directly interact with the authorities. You could not hold office in, 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 in one of these groups. And um, so the only way for these kinds of people to formally interact with the authorities um, would be to, would have been to form their own group and uh, perform duties of some kind for the government.
2: Yeah, that's uh, one of the most interesting things I think you said there was uh, the the way that these ostensibly sort of marginal groups, in fact, in many ways, are not marginal in that they the way that they interact with society echoes the structures. Uh, of society at large. And so by examining these groups out on on these, again, ostensible sort of margins, you're able to see something very profound about society itself. And I think it's one of the sort of strengths of of the work that you're doing here. and I guess it, it tells us a little bit about how they fit into the overall picture of the Edo period. Um, and of course, you've talked about um, the way that your interest in uh, poverty was a way as sort of uh, a way for you to de-romanticize Tokugawa, which, which I found also quite interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit um, about the period in which you decided to work, which you've decided uh, to work specifically on seventeen forty to eighteen seventy? Also, geographically, you limit yourself to the castle town of Ono, which is in Fukui Prefecture, uh, modern-day Um, Can you tell us about those choices? So, why Ono? Why that period? Um, and after that, if you have, uh, if you could, I'd love to tell you. I'd love for you to tell us about. Um, some of the remarkable primary sources that you got to work with for this study?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, hearing that, I'm realizing I, I really, for, for me, the geographic um, selection was a lot more conscious, a lot more intentional than the temporal selection. The time period between 1740 and 1870 came, um, I, I defined that um, because um I chose Ono as a case study. Um, The sources that were available about that place um, simply are the most abundant um, during that time period. That is to say, um, before that time, we really don't have much. Um, So it was almost by necessity that I I chose that. Um, The reason why I wanted to focus on one town had to do with the structure of the status order. Um, because I really wanted to connect um, the study of poverty, of poor relief with um, this um, structure of um, the social order and of government more generally. And and what I learned um, really from the status marginality scholars was um, that status groups, I mean, they were not these broad categories that cut all across the country i mean status itself was something that was intelligible all over the country everybody knew what a samurai was and what a peasant was and what a a townsperson was Um, but the groups that were in charge of assigning status by deciding membership within the or determining the membership within their groups and those were pretty small i mean a show or a village um, or um a um Confraternity or a, a guild, a trade or craft guild, I mean these groups they could range from a handful of members to maybe a couple of dozen in some cases over a hundred or so, and but they weren't really particularly large and they were also incredibly diverse um all over the country and uh, so to understand how they interacted on the, local gov- um, on the local level is really important for understanding government um, during that period and um, doing that on a countrywide level, I mean it would be completely impossible I uh, um, I've found it already um, incredibly complex just to, to work on, on on one place, I had initially other um, cities and uh, uh, other towns in mind that I wanted to compare to Ono and I realized that uh, just looking at this, this one town gave me plenty to work with um there was um really um so little that that i knew about um how these um relatively small occupational groups worked um uh, with each other and how they interacted with um various levels of government and 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 i was really interested in this is complexity and um so um i picked ono um uh, partly by coincidence i was um in fukui at the time i was um a um uh, doctor I, I was not i, I was a um, foreign um exchange <laughs> student at the um a research student at the um university of fukui and my host professor there matsuda yoshinori um recommended ono to me because he said um for this kind of topic uh, where you um look at um um, the urban underclass Ono is really the best within the prefecture. And that had to do with the fact that Ono hadn't been bombed in World War II. Um, Tsuruga had been bombed um heavily um fukui had also been heavily bombed and had been uh, had gone through an earthquake after world war ii a lot of sources on town society didn't exist anymore whereas in ono um there was a lot and that happened to be concentrated between 1740 and 1870 i'm not entirely sure why there were no um journals between 1740 there were suddenly that there probably were some that might have burned at some point i'm not sure um but I um, happened to uh, I then um, concentrated on 1740 to 1870 because, um, uh, especially the town elders' journals um, were um, preserved only for that time, and that periodization doesn't necessarily work for all of the aspects that I'm interested in. And um, so readers of my book will notice that um, I bring in material from other places where I feel like I need to fill some holes. So um, when I wrote about the beggar guilds, I had to supplement examples from other places to explain why these guilds even existed. Uh, And uh, because there is no evidence from Ono itself, I can only speculate about the roots of Ono's um, guild of, of beggar bosses. Um, and I think I can make some fairly educated guesses from what happens in other castle towns. And, and I brought that in um, and I do that in, in, in a couple of other instances as well. Um, and um yeah. So, so in that sense, the, the, the geographical uh, focus came first. And, um, as I said, I, um, don't really think about that focus as a limitation. It's, uh, something that, that can be incredibly enriching and, um, it, it kind of serves as a magnifying glass on all these, um, social interactions that were, uh, on the one hand, central to, um, how the Tokugawa state worked in practice. You can make this a uh, very big point about how the Tokugawa state worked, but, um, um you can also look into at um the nitty gritty um detail and uh, and write about and write basically a micro history of of government under the status order,
2: yeah, and I thought that was one of the uh the strengths of of the the book um can you tell us a little bit more about the sources you mentioned that there were uh journals of the town elders what were those like uh where were, where were they preserved what was the collection like yeah
1: Uh, So the journals of the um, town elders are really my most important, my richest source. Um, And um, the, the two town elders were basically at the intersection between the domain government and the townspeople. They were... Townspeople themselves, they were elite members of town society. And um, they were responsible for passing on petitions of um making sure that domain orders got executed and uh, uh passing on information, consulting uh, with um the domain government uh, about uh, policy, sometimes we presenting the townspeople, sometimes we presenting the um domain government. Um so they, they were really at the intersection and their um, journals reflect that a lot of this uh, interaction between um, the various groups in town society and, um, and on the one hand and, and the domain government on the other hand. And, um, uh, that meant um, that they had insight not just into townspeople's affairs, not just into the affairs of the chow and the Trade and Crafts Guilds, but they um, also had jurisdiction over the mendicant guilds about several villages in the vicinity of the town. They knew a lot about temples and shrines and their parishioners and tenants, and uh, they even dealt with, with agricultural issues. So... Um, I mean, what, what these journals don't do is that they were not produced within the occupational communities themselves, and so we get only glimpses of that. Um, but they um, do tell us a lot about the relationships between groups. And um, today, these... Um, Journals—they are um, over eighty volumes of them still preserved. This is a huge amount of material, um, and um, they are actually in um, a private archive um, today. They were um, af- after the major restoration. They seem to have been in the in the possession of um, of the town hall, and there they got borrowed by a local historian, and then it ended up in his in his uh, private archive. But I got access to them um, through uh, photographic reproductions that um, are today available in the Office for the Compilation of Ono City History. And um, the people in that archive um, were um, so kind to give me access to these reproductions. And um, I um, tried my best to um, decipher um, these um, journals and to to make sense of them. Um, At at first, I mean, I thought it was way too daunting to to deal with um, such a major amount of, of manuscript material most of this really hasn't been transcribed a little bit has been and that gave me a like a, a nice um uh, um a nice entry point um but um oh, oh um i uh, I have to say in retrospect, the deciphering was actually the easier part. You get used to that surprisingly quickly because there's a lot of repetition in the phrases and uh, the characters that are being used. And especially if it's the same writer, it uh, just gets easier and easier. What was harder um, was to make sense of the content because these journals are so incredibly scattered. They just note everything in chronological order. And there are certain incidents that are... Um, that yield a lot in terms of, of insights into um, these various status groups. And um, then there are also small snippets of information and you kind of get thrown in the middle of this town of 6,000 people and um, you need to bring some structure to that and uh, try to, um, uh, to to combine these fragments and um, gain a fuller picture of the social structure of these um, so far um, unresearched groups. There wasn't really a lot of... Um, um, a lot of prior research on on the structure of this particular town.
2: Yeah, I think that's very insightful in terms of thinking about the the work of, you know, historians more generally. I, I guess I'm still flabbergasted by the idea that this was uh that this 80 volume collection was a public collection that was borrowed by a historian at some point. i was <laughs> just thinking about the the sort of ethical problems and the overdue fines. It just wow, that's amazing. Um so I'd like to uh if we could then um jump a little bit into what essentially is your first chapter, uh, which is called The Castle Town and the Domain of Ono, uh, which lays out a history of Ono. Can you tell us um a little bit more about the town? We've been talking sort of peripherally about this up till now, but um what was it that uh was sort of a that um I know you said that it was, you know, uh, you were advised to take up Ono. Um, what did you find about Ono that was that worked for your project that was interesting in terms of giving us insights about Toka, uh Japan more generally?
1: I think, um, The biggest advantage about ONO, um, from my perspective of of trying to find out more about uh, poverty and poor relief and and, and, uh, the structure of government more, or the operation of government more and more generally, was that it was small. Um, It was um, a town of about 6,000 people in the 19th century. Um, very very different from these large metropolises um Edo um Kyoto Osaka with uh um in one case um about a million people um it was just a lot less complex and um the source it, it, and it allowed me to um um uh to um I, I mean it was a lot more more manageable in terms of, of research and um it was also tempting because a lot of the um, research on urban society that um, has appeared in English had it appeared in English up to that point, and even in, in Japan, um, had focused on these large metropolises. Um, they really had um, absorbed a lot of scholarly attention, whereas um, um, smaller castle towns like Ono are maybe a little bit bigger. I mean, Kanazawa is still relatively well researched, but um, there were very um, few studies of that. And I thought um, Ono could be an interesting example. And I also found it interesting that the town. Um, had so much interaction with the countryside. Um, Of course big cities like Edo and and Kyoto and so on they are also connected to the countryside but Ono, I mean it was a major commercial center in this um, region but at the same time there were a lot of townspeople that were um, working in agriculture. There were a lot of tenants, uh, people who um, um, rented um, fields near um, the town and and worked in agriculture. Um, There um, was a um, ono town um served as an important uh, function for people who lived in mountain villages and it was also relevant for um, helping um supporting these um, people during the winter um the village poor in the mountain villages um had this um custom that they would uh go out during the winter months month and uh, support themselves through begging in the region and, and and quite a few of these beggars would come to ono and there they would have access to rice school kitchens and, and other forms of charity uh so um the um the castle town um, was intimately connected with um the um, um support um of um, uh, these um small mountain villages which of, were of course economically important to the castle town as well, there was a copper mine uh in that area, and um the mountain villages um supplied a variety of of other commodities that um ono's townspeople were were trading with um and um Yeah, I mean, in that sense, um, Ono um, Ono Town um, is, of course, not representative of um, even of the category of of castle towns. It it could never be that. Um, But what really helped me um, connect it um, and... um, understand the significance of the various um, structures in in this town um, was the fact that there were so many other scholars um, working on um, related aspects in other towns and cities. So um, especially people who were affiliated with the Status Marginality Project, but also others, um, were um, uh, publishing Um, studies, for example, on Osaka's confraternities of beggar bosses or about famine relief in the castle town of Kumamoto, and they were uh, introducing me to certain problems and um, um, structures that I should perhaps pay attention to or they helped me understand if I had observed something in the case of Ono how uh, that uh, might uh, um, be comparable um, to a um, a structure in in another town, and and, uh, I um, try to yeah take advantage as much as possible um of these other um studies on 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 other um on other towns um to to put Onos case into context um so i try in the book to draw as many parallels as i can and of course um the parallels look quite different um depending on what aspect what aspect you look li- look at um for example Ono's guild of beggar bosses was quite similar to the beggar guilds of Osaka but it was very different from those of Edo but then there are other aspects where Ono was actually quite similar to Edo and not at all like Osaka so um, it um, um uh, it it turned out that um the um that that Ono um I mean it was neither exceptional um nor um was it um, representative, but um, it it really um, drew drew my attention to certain structures, to certain recurring themes and problems that one really needs to pay attention to when uh, trying to understand uh, poor relief in Tokugawa, Japan.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Yeah, that's interesting. You, we've
2: So we've been talking a little bit uh, about these so-called beggar bosses without actually g- getting into you know who, who they are um, and, and how they function, what they did. So I, I wonder if we could do that, because that's what you really do in chapters two and three. Um, chapter two, Beggars by Birth, an outcast group in domain society. And chapter three, the management of mendicancy. Um, so you focus on uh, the beggar bosses, the koshiro, as a status group in Ono. Um, so, who, who were they? Um, you, they had duties um, as a status group. So, what were they? Um, and of course, one of them is, you know, as you say in the book, the management of mendicancy, that which is the the, the core and in the, in the title of chapter three. Uh, so, what's that all about?
1: So, the Koshiro are actually the first um, group in Ono Town that I uh, researched after um, identifying Ono as my case. Uh, what? attracted me immediately and that, that actually serves as an answer also to your uh, previous question about why ono um there is an enormous amount of uh, material in the town elders journals about this group and they were very intimately involved with um beggars and uh, the management of of begging and um and i i call them beggar bosses which is a Pretty unconventional uh, translation, perhaps. I mean, one could also call them outcasts. Um, these uh, people um, certainly um, uh, fall in this category. Um, and what that means was that they were ostracized um, by the townspeople and other commoners. Um, they couldn't intermarry with commoners. They couldn't move into the Cho communities. Um, they couldn't join the trade and craft skills. And they had to be respectful towards townspeople and, and other commoners. And of course, the samurai in, in many situations. And, um, so one could, um, discuss them as outcasts. Um, and of course, I, um, also, um, uh highlight the discrimination that the Koshiro experienced in my book. Um, but I am in the book much more interested in their livelihood and uh, and what they did in everyday life. And in in some way they were a status group like any other. Um they had an occupation. And in their case, um this was begging and they were trying to monopolize that. Um uh they um were um granted a privilege um by the domain government that they uh would be um allowed um to um go around and collect arms from the domain population. And this was really um, highly regulated. It became highly regulated over time. The amounts of arms became fixed over time um, based on precedent. Um, And in exchange for um, um, being allowed to collect arms, the um, Koshido performed duties vis-a-vis the domain government, um, uh, like other status groups also. um, And um, that... um, Um, And and some of these duties were related to punishment and to the removal of pollution, and others had to do with the management of begging. So the Koshiro were in charge of running the beggar hospice in the castle town. Um, They had to patrol the town every day to identify beggars and vagrants on the streets and um, to throw them out if they deemed them suspicious. And if there was a dead beggar body on townland, they had to identify and bury it, and that was a matter that – um, a matter of, of, of order and maintaining order and control, but it was also a matter of, of, um, removing pollution. And, um, the Koshiro, um, I mean, they, they, they can be called hinin. Um, that's one of the main um, categories of outcasts in the Tokugawa um, society. They're the eta, the hinin, and the koshiro would fall under this label of hinin. And um, in that sense, they could perhaps be call, be called a beggar guild uh, because one way of translating hinin is beggar. Um, and it, um, the term is also used frequently in, in um, documents of the time for ordinary street beggars of uncertain background. Um, and it's quite common um, for um, Tokugawa Hinen associations to have these unique local names. So in Ono, it's the Koshiro. In Kyoto, it's the Tojiro. In Kanazawa, it's the Tonai. And they're all slightly different, um, but um, they can all be related to this label of Hinin. But um, I decided to call the Koshiro beggar bosses. Um First, because the supervision of beggars was their most important contribution to local society and it was uh, the closest of uh, what we uh, would um, consider as work, what they did on a daily basis. And um, also it um, was very... much how they saw themselves. They didn't like to think of themselves as beggars because that would have been disrespectful um, or it was damaged their reputation, uh, but they saw themselves as um, people who performed duties for the domain government. And so they saw themselves as beggar bosses rather than beggars. And so I uh, found it more helpful to um, call them beggar bosses. Yeah,
2: that's really interesting and i think it it gets to uh the sort of core and really the, the title of your book which is give and take right this question of sort of reciprocity that they uh receive some sort of privileges as part of being a status group and in return for that there are duties and i guess this sort of codification of um status and and relationship of these groups to uh, society at large, even if it's on this sort of local scale, is is you know one of the uh, core themes of the book. Um, and how does what did we what do we learn specifically about that give and take relationship um, through looking at the koshiro specifically?
1: Um, so the koshiro are actually a really good case for um, illustrating these reciprocal relationships because the Ono sources um, with regard to the koshiro. Um, display the interdependency between various status groups in and around the domain. Um, And the Koshiro also allowed me to demonstrate what happened when the domain government interfered with that web of relationships. The Koshiro um, had customary relationships with almost all the villages in the domain and with the cho um, and in exchange for gathering arms for these communities, they performed services for them, um, like expelling vagrants and serving as watchmen, and, and oftentimes that overlapped with what they had to do anyway for the domain government as a duty. But um, a lot of their duties were really limited um, to the castle town, and um, what they did for the villagers was really in exchange um, for um, for their um, gathering of arms um, from them. And um, in addition to these. Relationships between Koshiro and um, other status groups. There was the more hierarchical relationship that they had with the domain government. Um, uh, in order to have this public status as a as a status group, um, um, they um, needed to perform duties, um, uh, like I mentioned before, and um, that um, gave them then um, not just a public status, but also the right to uh, collect arms, like I mentioned. And so there are these two sets of relationships. Uh, one is uh, between um, um, different groups of subjects and uh, then the other relationship is uh, with one level of Tokugawa government with the domain lord and um, they um, can certainly be separated but they were interdependent because the koshiro had the right to gather arms from subjects um, they could make a living and perform duties um, for the domain and, and vice versa um and so um, usually this was a pretty stable situation, but it wasn't always so. There were um, times when um, an imbalance occurred um, between these various um, kinds of relationships. And um, that happened in Ono, for example, after the Tempo Famine. And I, so, during um, after the Tempo famine, the Koshiro were no longer able to collect sufficient amounts of arms from the villages. And I think that has to do with the fact that probably village households died out during the famine, so they couldn't give as much. And that led to a shrinking of the guild. And the domain government decided to intervene because it needed the Koshiro for various duties, um, like the patrols, for example. They took those very seriously. And, um and they ended up, um, forcing villages to pledge a certain amount of arms, um, that they would pay to the Koshiro every year. And this was really calculated very carefully, which village would pay how much. And they had really had to make sure that they gave this much and that could not no longer be regulated uh, by customs. So it's hard to call that arms giving anymore. It was more like a, like a tax, like a security tax as the Koshiro were um, performing these, uh, these tasks in public security. Um, But at the same time, um, this um, relationship between the villagers and the koshiro was left intact. um, And the two sides could still negotiate various things with each other without interference from the domain. Um, So um, although the domain government intervened, they did not uh, profoundly um, change um, the whole structure. And there's also a very, very interesting uh, case in which the domain government uh, tried to get the Koshido to perform an entirely new duty that they had not had to do before, and that was in 1852, when they ordered them to do executions um, for the domain. And until that point, this had been the job of the jail guard, and the jail guard didn't want to do it anymore. Um, And uh, the domain government tried to solve this problem by telling the Koshiro to do it, but they couldn't just order them to do it. They had to offer them something in return. And um, even when the Koshido accepted that incentive uh the domain also needed to be mindful of all the other reciprocal relationships that already existed between the other groups in domain society and they had to think about how those might be affected if one disturbed the balance between them and I don't want to go into detail here because this gets really nitty gritty um but it's quite impressive to see um all the little adjustments that officials were making in this case to satisfy not just the Koshido but um also other groups of domain subjects um, that interacted with them, how seriously they were taking um, these um, small agreements and um, how they were trying to find these ad hoc solutions to make sure that the Koshi really uh, would perform executions um, for the. WWE. Yeah,
2: I, I. This is something that I, I was hoping we would get to because I found it one of the you know fascinating and sort of insightful pieces of of your work, which is this this kind of feeling that everybody is playing Jenga. You know that there's uh this this very uh, you know inter interlocked multi level system, and if you move any of the parts, then you really have to consider what all of the other you know what 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 that means to to the sort of status order um, and to the way that society works. So, yeah, thank you for uh, bringing that out. Um, I wonder if we could move along to chapter four then, um, in which you deal not with the koshiro, but with another of these status groups, the uh, the blind guilds. Um, there were two, and the, the title of the chapter is the guilds of the blind. Um, there were two blind guilds in Ono. There was a male uh, guild and a female guild. Um, Which I thought was interesting in and of itself. And I wonder if you could talk about that. But can you tell us about the guilds? um, And how were they different from the koshiro in terms of their duties and relationship to other members of society?
1: Um, So I think uh, people who know a little bit about Tokugawa Japan are probably um, familiar with the guilds of the blind. And I think it's also pretty common knowledge that um, they had a monopoly on certain occupations um, like acupuncture and the performance of the koto and the shamisen string instruments, um, at least in case these were performed by blind people. Um, So um, what um, I... um, uh, uh, I think is um a little perhaps a little less known is um that um these guilds also defended members' right to collect certain kinds of arms. Um that these were also mendicant associations, um like the Koshiro. They had customary Rights on um, the collection on um, certain kinds of arms um, and uh, determine uh, and rules that determined how many arms they could demand from different kinds of households. And that wasn't really something that was on my radar when I started to do this research, but it struck me that whenever there was a um, an instance, for example, in the household of the domain lord, when uh, there was a wedding or a funeral, um, that arms were given out, not just to the koshiro, but also to the Zato and the goze. Um, the Zato and goze were the only social groups in domain society apart from the koshiro that were receiving arms from households in the domain on a regular basis. And, um, yet, um, The um, Zato in particular um, always tried very hard to differentiate themselves from the Koshiro. On the one hand, they repeatedly stated how important these arms were to their livelihoods, Um, but... um, it was. It's. It, it's clear that um, they also. The, this um, collection of arms also made them vulnerable to discrimination. Um, anybody who wished them ill um, could have pointed out that the blind guilds were really no different from the koshiro and that they didn't deserve to be um, treated with respect. And uh, and the zato and Gose were in many ways quite different from the koshiro. This was. Th- those were not hereditary associations. They were always replenished from um, the commoners. Um, they were indeed often poor, especially in small castle towns like Ono. Um, they were disabled, um, but um, they um, were, unlike the koshiro, um, actually allowed to live among the townspeople. But pretty much all of them in Ono lived in the town. And at least um, the male Zato were also able to marry commoner women. There was, in fact, a rule um, among the goza that they were um, not allowed to um, Get married neither uh, with zato nor uh with um with commoner men and um and the zato and goze were anxious to uh, preserve these prerogatives and um kept their distance um from the beggar bosses and um I also found it interesting to compare um the effect um that the organizational structures of these various guilds um had on on the leverage that they enjoyed um uh, in demanding protection um uh the unlike the koshiro um the zato had a countrywide organization the goze did not the goze were in uh, most places um subordinate um, to the local um zato guild, but the zato guilds um were all affiliated with a countrywide organization the so called todosa and um and they benefited from this affiliation because the Todosa, um had a headquarters in Kyoto. They had a close relationship with the shogunate and um, they were able to get um, the group's various privileges confirmed by the shogunate and um, Ono's lord couldn't just go ahead and revoke the Zato's and Gose's uh, begging and other privileges if he felt like it. And uh, this was particularly important because the Zato and Gose were never as useful to the domain as the Koshiro. I mean, the, the Koshiro, by the 19th century, by, by the late 18th century, really, they had evolved into a police force. They were not just taking charge of, um, of beggars, but they were investigating crime on a pretty large scale. Um, the Zato and Gose they on the other hand, did not perform any significant duty um, other than the fact that they were controlling their own members. And that was a duty that was expected from every status group in Tokugawa society, but it wasn't really that important to the domain. And that's probably the reason why the domain government didn't step in um, as forcefully on behalf of arms giving to the blind as it did on behalf of arms giving to the Koshiro um, so um like like we we saw in my response um to um your earlier question the domain um actually trying to uh to fix or even to raise the amount of arms that people um had to give so the blinds the guild of the guilds of the blind explicitly had to refer to their blindness and appeal to um the lords and society's compassion to get the protections that they needed so um although Koshido and, and the guilds of the, the Koshido and the guilds of the blind are both examples of mendicant groups um they were operating under pretty um different um, circumstances and they tried to manipulate the conventions of the status order in different ways
2: yeah that's really interesting um that you you have these uh different different groups that are interacting um with with society and sort of you know setting up this this contrast between the two of them helps to kind of triangulate the ways that different status groups uh particularly these mendicant groups um and uh sort of marginal status groups interacted with society as a whole at different levels um chapters five and six then um chapter five benevolence charity or duty hunger relief in the castle town and chapter six Uh, growth through gratitude, welfare in a mercantilist domain, shift your focus to um, different kinds of poverty and disaster management. Um, And so your overall interest in the relationships between civil society and government, um, and the the ways that uh, poverty is sort of dealt with in a reciprocal way in society doesn't change. uh, But some of the actors and dynamics do. So I wonder if we could move on to chapters five and six. um, And partially because famine features prominently in both chapters. I'd like to kind of start with that. Um, Chapter five looks at the changes to relief efforts for the poor that took place as a result of the Temmei famine, which came in the late uh, 18th century. could you first tell us about the famine itself and the broader significance of that famine, uh, also famines more generally in considering Edo period history? Specifically in chapter five, you show that aid for the poor uh, and for the disaster-stricken changed in tangible ways as a result of the Temme famine. So what happened and why? Um, And is this a a short-term ad hoc change? Is it part of a bigger shift in ideologies and methodologies surrounding aid for the poor and poverty-stricken? And does that mean a change in attitudes about poverty and the poor themselves?
1: Yeah, so the Tembe famine was um, one of the biggest um, famines of the Tokugawa period. Um, it um, lasted for uh, several years um, from there were several um, years of uh, harvest um, Failures between um, 1782 uh, and uh, 1788, and uh, it caused rioting in many towns and cities, including Edo. And that was uh, the most traumatizing for the shogunate, it really intimidated the shogunate into action. And then, under Matsudaira Sadanobu, under the, during the Kansei reform, um, an uh, emergency relief fund for Edo's townspeople was created um, the so called Machi Kaisho, that then became uh, one of the uh, more successful. Um, relief mechanisms of the Tokugawa period. And in the course of this reform, the shogun had also forced all daimyo across the country to establish some kind of um, permanent relief fund in their domains. And the reason why I um, decided to uh, peel apart the um, operation of uh, um, starvation relief to the example of um, this famine was... Um, was in part that the um, Tanmay Famine was a turning point and how this was organized, um, but also because a famine is is a moment of acute crisis. And... um and the mechanisms that um, regulate poverty in normal times no longer um, function because simply the number of starving people is too high and social order threatens to break down because people leave um, their communities uh, for survival. So this is a, a quite exceptional moment. And it is during this moment that a lot of... Um, mechanisms in Ono's town society get activated that one doesn't really see so clearly in um, normal times, or maybe they are not even um, operating in normal times. And so this became also a window for me on Ono's town society. And and I said earlier that uh, when I started out, I didn't really know very much about um, the specifics of um, this town society, how... um, um, uh, the um various um organizations in town society the status groups um, how they um uh collaborated um with um the town elders and then by extension with the domain government so i actually um learned a lot about um town society in general um through um researching this particular chapter and so um what i found um uh Uh, What I was was trying to do in this chapter um, was to look not so much at how the domain government um, dealt with um, the crisis. There are, of course, um, some documents on that as well, and um, that has been um, the focus of of a lot of previous research. But I was more curious um, uh, to learn more about um, the social bodies in in town society and how um they um interacted with each other to um resolve this crisis and um in the Tenmei famine um in 1783 and especially in 1784 um what um the townspeople did was um to establish a collection mechanisms me- mechanism of donations for the entire town population. And they had not really done that before at that point. And the most um important um group of um townspeople um that made the biggest contribution to this um pooling of of donations uh, was an organization called the Purveyor Guild, um, the Goyotashi Nakama. And this was an organization of um, wealthy merchants that had existed previously, and they played various roles in town society. They uh, performed various duties, and they ended up collecting most of the donations uh, for the starving. And then um, the domain leadership also came up with a mechanism by which all the Cho communities would supply donations. And the Cho communities were generally responsible for aiding the poor among themselves, but in this case, they would actually pool all the donations, um, and then they would be distributed among all the cho- to- all the town poor at once that had applied for relief. So, um, and this was a was a new way of of regulating charity in the town. And it was quite innovative because um, charity among townspeople in Ono had so far um, been mostly informal. Um, wealthy townspeople were giving to the poor, but most of this charity um, tended to go um, to poor people who happened to be their neighbors um, or maybe their tenants. And that was a problem not just in Ono, but we see that also in Edo and and in other Japanese cities in the 18th century, that um, charity happens, but it's unregulated. It's uh, not always going where it uh, needs to go. Um, Also, because there's this growing disparity between um, rich and poor, in in the um uh, towns and cities of the time and um and we see other um cities addressing this problem a lot sooner than ono um in osaka, for example they um, they they establish a um, mechanism that's uh, pretty similar um to ono this regulated um charity in the 1730s during the Kyo famine, but in ono it it happens during ten may. And I think it's partly because Ono simply wasn't economically as, as highly developed as, as Osaka was in the 1730s. Um, and so all over the country, there is this trend in the 18th century of urban famine relief becoming more organized, becoming more formalized and requiring more formal collaboration between samurai administrators and, and wealthy townspeople. Um, so in this chapter, I try to emphasize um, how the status order still plays a major role in structuring these new relationships and making these new solutions um, uh, possible, and that it is um, a mechanism of government that is actually flexible enough to, to explore such new approaches. Um, and you asked about... Um, the changing attitudes towards the poor. And that was something that I was always hoping to, to get at more. And I um, wish I was able to say a little more about it because I'm very interested in it. Um, but uh, one thing that seems fairly clear um, is um, that in the 18th century, administrators were starting to find it less and less appropriate um, to have townspeople back on the streets. And it's... Um, um in the in the um for for other cities for example kyoto in the in the 17th century it's very common when there is a Famine that townspeople would go out and, and they would ask for arms or they would line up for uh, soup kitchens. Um, and then they would, of course, have to mingle with ordinary beggars who did not have a home and uh, who, were, who were a lot less, less respectable, um, uh, than, um, than townspeople with a home. And, um, in the 17th century, that seems to have been pretty common because, um, during a famine, soup kitchens really were the most common organized way, uh, uh to deal, um, with, uh, to help starving townspeople. Um, And then in the 18th century, um, I'm beginning to see um, more evidence that people were bothered by that sort of thing. one Confucian scholars in, scholar in, in Kyoto, for example, Miwa Kiken, uh, wrote a tract in which um, he complained about um, ordinary townspeople having to mingle with beggars and standing in line for a soup kitchen. And in Fukui, um, there is a report from the Tenmei famine that townspeople who went out begging covered their faces to conceal their identity. And... Uh, so um by, by by institutionalizing um charity in, in the way that I just described, it became possible to move people away from soup kitchens and um help people um get aid where they resided. And Orno Domain did have soup kitchens. Actually, every winter they were the domain was doing this. Um, um but um that um seems to have increasingly become um something that um uh, was considered um relief for for beggars. Uh, and of course, this, um, moving people away from soup kitchens was also a precaution against rioting. Um, and when Ono eventually abolished, um, Ono Domain ev- eventually abolished um, the Domain's soup kitchens in um, in the late, uh, in the 1860s, that happens much, much later than the Temme famine, uh, but eventually they abolished them. And one um, reason seems to have been that um, The town society was uh, quite restless during those years, and uh, they were trying to make sure um, that there was as little potential for rioting as possible.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. And it also provides a great segue into your Chapter 6, where you're really talking about uh, the 19th century in Ono. Um, And here in Chapter 6, you're analyzing changes to poverty management um, in the early part of the 19th century, um, you highlight two really important um, interrelated factors here, uh, the Tempo famine of the 1830s and a mercantilist shift in the domain's economic politics. Can you tell us about both of those and about their effects on poverty management in Ono?
1: So it's it's very interesting to compare the Temme famine and uh, the Tempo famine in, in the 1830s, Um because the impact on Ono's local society seems to have been quite different. Um, for the 10 May famine, I did not see a whole lot of evidence um, that um, crime went up, that the social order was breaking down. Um, but during the Tempo famine, that was a, a completely different picture. There was a lot of... Um, vagrancy and a lot of crime that uh, turned out to have been um, committed by local vagrants who were active in the region and um and i'm not entirely sure why and what happened in the interim or whether there was something about the famine that was um completely different but i uh, largely see this as the result of a slow change in the society of that region that probably had something to do with commercialization and uh economic crisis in the villages it's it's hard to really um, definitely connect the two but i think there probably was a connection and, uh, both famines, um, took a lot of lives. I don't know, um, how many in the case of the Temme famine, but there are figures for Tempo. And according to domain records, um, close to 5,000 people probably died, um, uh, out of a population of 29,000. And of course, that was seen as um, a very critical moment for the domain. I mean, the domain government, like most other domains at the time, um, they had had budgetary problems, major budgetary problems since the 18th century. And after the famine, um, the domain had an even bigger mountain of debt and um, they were addressed facing this big population loss and loss of productivity and um, major poverty among its subjects. And, uh, and that's um, really one big factor why the domain government um, – Took up mercantilist um, reform in the 1840s and uh, they saw that really as a matter of, of survival for the domain and trying to get rid of the debt uh, remedy poverty among subjects. And, um, and these domain reform. Um, This domain reform continued for a quite long time. Um, It went on and off um, until and and even beyond the Meiji Restoration until the domain was abolished. And um, it very clearly went hand in hand with a rethinking um, about how to address poverty. Um, So it's very striking the domain suddenly put a major emphasis on growing the population and on making that population more productive. And uh, it really... Uh, the officials started to pay more attention to poor relief. So um, helping the people um, as a way to help the domain economy. Um, and Onus domain officials also showed a striking new interest in healthcare that hadn't been there before. Um, especially they promoted smallpox vaccinations and a hospital, and there was a lot of engagement with Western medicine, uh, with Dutch learning, um, and 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 again i mean they saw this as a way to to grow the population and um to to make that uh, population uh grateful and and involve them in 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 contributing um to the um prosperity of the domain so so they were um they were using the, this idea of benevolent rule as a tool to discipline domain subjects in a way like bribing the population. Um, they argued explicitly that healthcare and generous poor relief would create a debt toward the government um, that the subjects should repay with diligent and productive labor. And they made that argument again and again and again in uh, in the 1860s in particular. And, um, I mean, a lot of this thinking wasn't um, as new as I just made it out to be. Of course, this idea of, of this ideology of benevolent rule had been around for a long time. And it's not like um, health care had not before been considered part of the Lord's responsibilities uh, for his subjects. Um, but it was never implemented very thoroughly. And... Um, the government suddenly after the temple famine started to intensify and integrate all uh, these ideas to make them part of uh, all these strategies to make them part of a larger plan to um, lift up the um, domain economy. And they be- the government became a lot more involved and coercive um, and bureaucratic towards its subjects to, to make that happen. Um, so uh, that, that does remind uh, one quite a bit of, of Michel Foucault's um, idea of, of biopolitics. and and this um, reform did um, in some sense have a beneficial effect on ONU's domain poor they were a lot more likely to to get support from the government but um, they were also being disciplined and supervised to an unprecedented degree and uh, I want to add maybe a little bit on on how this then translates into the Meiji period Um, this particular reform um, ended um, pretty abruptly when uh the shogunate um fell and then the domain was abolished um so on the surface there seems to have been um um quite a, a rupture um between Tokugawa and Meiji, but, um, I then, uh, looked a little bit into the first decades of Meiji. There are much fewer sources than for Tokugawa, but I, I tried my best and, uh, and I found that these reforms and their way of dealing with poverty actually foreshadowed quite a bit of what then happened in the first half of Meiji. And especially, um, with regard to the focus on public health, where local elites directly tried to, uh, build on these earlier attempts of the domain lord, um, to, um, to fund that um, on the local level. And then this focus on economic development, trying to um, create employment for the local poor. Um, I think if there was really one large change um, that impacted the the situation of the poor was the abolition of the status groups. Um, And especially the mendicant status groups like the Zato and the gozè and um, the Koshiro, these groups were all completely abolished and um, uh, and begging was um, prohibited in, in this prefecture as well as in, in other prefectures um, in the Meiji period. And that was really a, a, a very radical change in uh, the way in which um, the poor were traditionally supported um, and um, could... Um, um, also, uh, take their own um, situation or influence their own situation to um, some degree by by gaining some autonomy for themselves.
2: Yeah, thank you f- uh, for adding that that part about the sort of Tokugawa Binji transition because I think it's it's very helpful in comp- again complicating some of these ideas that we have about the the. Uh, the ways that that transition plays out, but also specifically in thinking about the abolition of these status groups and the kind of effects that it had on society um, and how that uh, plays into the sort of creation of uh, modern Japan, which I have to say, is, you know, of course, as you know, sort of my my particular interest. So that's very helpful for me personally as well. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about. You know, you started to hint that uh, you know you've you've been uh, looking beyond the 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 scope of the book strictly. I, I don't know uh, if you'd like to tell us about a project that you're working on now. Are you continuing with this work? Are you, are you working on something new?
1: Okay, so um, my second project, um, I think in a way it's a continuation of what I've been doing, um, but it also it takes me far beyond Ono Domain itself and um, to completely new subjects. Um, So this domain reform that I've been talking about actually has gotten a lot of attention from local historians in Ono in particular it's been a a matter of of local pride really uh, because the domain was doing pretty unusual things that were especially unusual for a domain of this size Um, the domain government um, asked the shogunate for permission to engage in the colonization of of Kita Ezochi of uh, today's um, island of Sakhalin and they got into um, pretty difficult interactions with the Russian Empire um, they also, even though they were not really located on the coast, they um, bought a Western-style sailing ship and they learned how to operate it, even though um, most of the people um, that were in charge of it didn't really know how to sail a Western-style ship or any ship at all for that matter. And then they started um, a trading company um, that uh, became quite successful. It was run by Samurai and it um, d- established branches all over the country. and. Uh, um, and, and it it even survived into the meiji period and uh, was was really quite successful um so these um initiatives have gotten a lot of attention and in so far i stayed clear from them for the most part um uh, because i was more interested i was less interested in what um domain officials were doing uh, and i was certainly not interested in in lionizing um the the people who were in in charge of these domain uh, of of these these reforms um but i was um interested in in the poor and what these um, domain reforms meant um, for their situation. But I think in my second project, I should actually look at that a little more because um, I think these reforms are very, very interesting and they allow me um, to um, look more closely at the concept of of a domain, what a domain actually is and what it does, Um, um, the way that the domain suddenly um, starts to um, almost morph into a commercial enterprise during that time and um, how um, domain officials interacted with um local merchants in um, the various um, cities and towns in which um, they acted and and, and tried to trade and how they were trying to plug themselves into the trading networks along the Sea of Japan, the Kitamae, Bune, and so on, and uh, how um, they uh, were trying to interact with foreigners. And I think there is a lot to be discovered, and um, that's... um, an and i and i think it's it, it makes sense um to also stay with the same domain because i've i've gotten um a pretty good sense of um of the archive um uh there and of course there are still a lot of sources um that i haven't um touched um there is um a, a major um uh collection of um of sources on the domain government um that um is uh, probably larger than what exists um for the town it's uh, um is something that that I will um continue to look into further. And it really does help that I that I have this background on on this particular domain and I hope to make that productive um for my second project also.
2: Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I, I love this idea that you just put out there of the domain essentially transforming itself into some kind of uh commercial enterprise. That's that's really interesting and I I'm looking forward to uh seeing how that turns out. Um and we're uh i think gonna have to wrap up here thank you so much uh for spending some time with us and uh thanks for uh thanks for being with us on the podcast